This is The Guardian. Hi, this is Guardian Australia Reads. I'm Jane Lee. Every week we pick some of The Guardian's best stories and then we read them aloud for you. With petrol getting more and more expensive and all of us ever anxious about the impact of climate change, electric cars are sounding more and more like a good idea. But until the price comes down and more charging stations become available, most of us are still not ready to own one. So Guardian Australia's economics correspondent Peter Hannum decided to test drive a few electric cars to see how they'd fare on a road trip from Melbourne to Sydney. Electric vehicles are finally becoming a common sight on Australia's urban streets, with sales tripling last year. Until recently, though, limited battery size and a lack of fast-charging stations meant out-of-town excursions required careful planning. State governments and fuel suppliers, including Ampol, have lately announced plans to greatly expand the network of charging sites across inland Australia. Most, though, will take time to build possibly not fast enough to meet the surge in EVs on the road. Over the recent Christmas period, I sought to test the EV facilities between our two biggest cities, Sydney and Melbourne, during peak driving season. To do so, I borrowed the Ionic 5, which Hyundai says boasts a range approaching 450 kilometres on a full charge, one of the longest in the market. Over a week, my wife Yin and I toured the high country of the Snowy Mountains, drove around Melbourne and out to Geelong, before taking the coastal route home, revealing a few pleasures and pitfalls along the way. We already own a small EV, which we charge overnight in the garage off the mains. Borrowing a bigger car with an unfamiliar plug and tapping public charging sites were novelties. As it turned out, A few others we met along almost 3,000 kilometres were novices too. At 200 kilometres from Sydney, Goulburn, a town known for its giant merino ram statue, was an obvious place to top up the Ionic's 72.6 kilowatt hour battery. Ironically, the charging site we aimed for is located at a petrol station. This would not be the last time we plugged in as people gassed up, and there will be more of this in years to come. Ampol, for instance, plans a $100 million national network of future energy projects. A veteran Tesla driver cheerfully helped us overcome the first challenge, downloading a necessary app, in this case, for the ChargeVox chargers. We found camaraderie among EV drivers to be a regular feature at charging points. People were happy to share tales and had the time to do it, with charge-ups taking anywhere from 15 minutes to more than an hour, depending on the site capacity and range being sought. Less fortunate, though, was a young couple from Canberra, venturing out with their two young children in their new MG, en route to the coastal town of Kayama. EV equals possible divorce, the sheepish driver said, as he and his partner failed to download the app. With kids overheating in the back seat, his frustrated partner declared defeat. Let's go back and get the fossil car. Decent road trips, of course, require the odd detour off the highway. Skirting Canberra, we powered on to Cooma, where we plugged into Snowy Hydro's charger, presumably renewably sourced. 
The final 10% of charging is typically a lot slower. Impatient, as the car's computer was telling us 90%, we figured we'd have ample charge to reach Albury from there. We had a range of 342 kilometres, and the border town where we planned to stay the night was only 319 kilometres away. Some EVs account not only for distance, but calculate conditions, such as changing elevation, to improve their predictions. Such capability would have been handy as we wound into the mountains, with no obvious charge points along the way. With instant torque and low centre of gravity, thanks for those batteries, EVs offer a touring experience few petrol vehicles can match. Plus, there is no engine noise. Enjoyable though it may have been, we were still plugging up hills. To be safe, we drove with windows down and the AC off, except when summer thunderstorms rumbled over. We also cut speed to reduce the drag. Careful driving meant we outperformed the Ionics estimate and arrived in Albury with 79 kilometres to spare. Among Albury's allures was free charging, at least for those willing to wait in line at the top of a shopping centre car park. Apps such as PlugShare, ABRP and Eevee help inform drivers of charging availability, and even allow for comments warning about damaged equipment. We meet a couple in a Nissan Leaf with a 200km range. They were slowly hopping their way to Sydney. During previous tours, they had discovered to their concern that their car seemed to overheat if they charged and then tried to drive immediately, so they were getting to know well the cafes along the route. Not every one of our charges went so smoothly. A lack of mobile reception at one site meant we could not use our app and had to ring the operator to remotely release us from a plug that otherwise refused to let us go. At an overnight stop in Mansfield, there was no charger. However, the motel we stayed at knew the drill, stringing out a 25-metre extension cord to give us additional juice. A few people asked for it, a staffer said. Our final charge was at another big road stop at Euroa. After that, we took the spectacular Maroonda Highway through the giant mountain ash forests, a road worth taking whatever your means of mobility. Melbourne, as you might imagine, has lots of charging options. But even then, nothing is foolproof. A visit to the RACV headquarters and the CBD turned out to be a dud. COVID restricted charging to members only. Memo, keep checking the apps. Staying in the Bayside region in the city's southeast, we'd made use of the local council's charging bays on three occasions. Most Melbourne-Sydney road journeys follow the Hume's north-south trunk, but the more scenic and challenging for EVs path is the coastal one. Until there are more charges, few EV drivers will take the risk. But without the demand, not many private operators will set up shop without government support. The 1,000 plus kilometre route is popular for drivers with more time on their hands, in part because of the region's beauty, but also the less crowded beaches and forests. Heading eastwards into Gippsland was straightforward until you hit Sale. This was a crucial destination not just for our journey. During our wait to charge, a busy lineup of vehicles gathered nearby. Luckily, 
The port of sale location comes with a cafe and gallery to fill any downtime. And there are river cruise options too, if the wait is a really long one. For those continuing on to New South Wales, a long hop awaits, as one driver, Tom, describes it. He normally wouldn't charge his Tesla beyond 96% because it reduces battery performance over time. But for this trip, Tom makes an exception and advises us to do so too. We take the 23 minutes extra to go from 90% to 100%. As we had been driving conservatively, our Ionic reckons we have a 480 kilometer range departing sail. Our destination, Bega, is 395 kilometers away. So we exit with confidence. However, this estimate doesn't take into account windy roads, even if there are few steep climbs. We watch with growing intent as the battery buffer steadily shrinks. With about 130 kilometers to go, and the sun setting as we near the New South Wales border, the car starts to guess we might have a problem reaching our nearest charge point. We ease back on the pedal, trimming speed to 90 kilometers an hour in 100 kilometer an hour zones. Our ETA blows out by half an hour. With 40 kilometers to go and about 10% charge, the car's screens start to warn us to search for alternative recharging. This is what range anxiety looks like. We slow down further going up hills and roll down the other side in a bid to recapture any extra charge we can from the regenerative brakes. We're conscious that Bega sits on a plateau, so the last section will involve climbing. Thankfully, it's evening and we don't need air conditioning, but we start to wonder whether saving on lights might make a difference. Half in jest, we ponder how many more metres our phone batteries might offer. Cars bank up behind as they await the chance to overtake us. We'd heard car makers build in some reserve at zero, much as combustion engines can run on empty for a while. With 1.6 kilometres to go to the charge point and only 5 kilometres range remaining, if something goes wrong, we'll have to find out if the Hyundai has hidden watts. Fortunately, we locate the charger without fuss and find Tesla Tom from Sale topping up. Some rowdy locals declare us a captive audience, so we bolt with a 14% charge, vowing to return in daylight. Charging points are often in poorly lit parts of town, we found. At 7am, Bigger's streets are clear, as is the charging bay. At 80% capacity, the battery generously tells us we have a range of 354 kilometres, not far shy of the 460 kilometres we need to make it all the way back to Sydney, with detours. From now on, though, there are many more refill options. We make the most of free electricity by NRMA, recharging at the three Bs, Bega, Batemans Bay and Berry. The whole return leg doesn't cost us a thing. Just about 9.30pm, we park outside our Sydney home. The odometers clocked our journey at 2,861 kilometres. Since our drive, New South Wales has released plans to build a thousand charging stations over the next four years. An indicative map suggests at least the southeast town of Eden will get a charger, shortening the long hop. Victoria, too, is stepping up its $100 million zero emissions vehicle roadmap 
aimed at building on the 116 sites already supported by the state's government. Those sites, and many others, could come in a rush, particularly if hotels and other resorts see EV charging as a magnet. They might need to if they are to meet the huge increase in such vehicles in coming years and the expectations of their cashed-up owners. That was A Trip from Sydney to Melbourne and Back revealed a series of pleasures and pitfalls of Australia's electrified open roads by Peter Hannum. The reader was Colin Smith. Australians love a winner. We cling to our sporting greats like superheroes long after they've retired and even passed away. But what happens to our best and brightest when they're prevented from fulfilling their potential? Our next story brings us to the frustrating limbo of being both a refugee and Australia's greatest wrestler. Ali Hosseini cannot recall when he first started wrestling. I was young, the 28-year-old exclaims. But for as long as Hosseini can remember, he has wanted to compete on the world stage. He says, I have always been motivated to one day become a wrestling world champion and go to the Olympics. Husseini is a multiple-time Australian wrestling champion, winning his most recent title last May in the men's 57kg freestyle category. A bricklayer by trade, Husseini rises early at his home in Western Sydney to spend the day on sweltering construction sites. But despite the physically gruelling nature of his day job, evening after evening Husseini can be found at a local gym training himself and coaching others in the finer points of freestyle wrestling. The wrestler claimed his first major domestic title in 2014 and has been almost unbeatable ever since. Husseini is instantly recognised at the gym. Anything for the pro, laughs a staff member after spotting him. Even on rest days, Husseini can be found in his backyard working out with his own weights. Despite being in the lightweight category, Husseini is renowned for his muscular strength. Together with a nightly call to his mother, wrestling provides the daily rhythm to Husseini's life. Sport allows me to keep moving forward, he offers. But the national champion's Olympic dreams remain agonisingly out of reach. An ethnic Hazara refugee from Afghanistan, Husseini arrived by boat in 2013. He remains in Australia on a temporary visa which, under the federal government's immigration policy, can never be made permanent. That leaves the wrestler unable to compete in international competition, blocked from wrestling under the Australian flag. In other words, the best wrestler in Australia may never represent the country. When I arrived here, I was really excited to compete for Australia, Hussaini says through an interpreter. I was ready in 2016 to go to Brazil for the Olympics. But unable to travel, Husseini could not contest the Olympic qualification event in Algeria. Because of my visa status, being a stateless person with no passport, I was not allowed to travel, he continues. That crushed my hope. Nine years after Husseini arrived in Australia, he is no closer to fulfilling his dream. Today I am still wrestling and still on a temporary visa, he says in a deflated tone. I have done everything I can in Australian wrestling. 
His dreams live on, but only just. It is still a dream that I can represent Australia one day, he continues. But time is moving really fast. Looking at my visa situation, it looks impossible at the moment. Husseini is not the only one. Zaki Haidari, from the Jesuit Refugee Services, says there are about 5,000 Afghan refugees in this situation in Australia. In August 2012, the Gillard government froze the refugee application process for anyone who had arrived by boat. In 2014, the Abbott government amended immigration law to prevent boat arrivals from ever receiving a permanent visa. That prohibition still stands today. We cannot get permanent protection from the Australian government ever, adds Haidari. This temporary cohort can lawfully work, but are effectively unable to pursue further education. These refugees are unable to sponsor visa applications for immediate family back home to relocate, and if they start a family in Australia, their children face the same limbo. Ten years is a long time we've been away from family, says Haidari. We can buy a lot of things, but we cannot buy time. Once it is gone, it's gone. Husseini grew up in a small village in the province of Maidan Wadak, outside the capital, Kabul. The Persian-speaking Hazara people are a persecuted minority in Afghanistan. The Hazaras have been persecuted for a century or more, explains Haidari but especially lately. The Taliban have massacred and persecuted the Hazara throughout their reign. The Hazara are predominantly Shia Muslims, while the majority of Afghans, including the Taliban, practice Sunni Islam. As a teenager, Husseini moved to Kabul to train professionally as a wrestler. Despite the post-9-11 American occupation and establishment of a new Afghan government, the Hazara continued to face persecution, including from Taliban rebel forces. As the security situation deteriorated in the early 2010s, it became increasingly dangerous for Husseini to travel between Kabul and his hometown. The roads were not safe, he recalls. Every day it was high risk. Husseini's brother was kidnapped, tortured and killed by the Taliban. It was a tough time, he says. In 2013, barely an adult, Husseini fled Afghanistan alone. He flew to India, then Singapore, then Malaysia, before crossing to Indonesia. Husseini subsequently made the journey by boat to Christmas Island, where he was detained by Australian immigration authorities and claimed asylum. I was searching for a safe country, he says, I thought Australia would allow me to achieve my hopes and dreams. He was mistaken. Husseini spent several months in detention centres, shuffling between Christmas Island, Darwin and Western Australia, before being released on a bridging visa. Husseini has been in limbo ever since. Accepted as a refugee, but unable to apply for a permanent visa, with no pathway to residency. I will be on a temporary visa forever, he says. Throughout his arduous journey, the wrestler never stopped training, even during his stint in immigration detention. Wrestling is a good distraction for me, he says. I can't see my family, the visa, the crisis in Afghanistan, 
There's a lot happening in my head. But wrestling gives me hope. Even though my life is not under my control, it feels like it is controlled by the immigration system, wrestling is something I can control. Even still, the fall of Kabul last year has taken a heavy toll on Husseini and the wider Hazara community. Our families are dying in Afghanistan, says Haidari. The refugee advocate says there have been a number of suicides and increasing rates of depression among the refugee cohort. Husseini's immediate family fled to Pakistan following the Taliban's resurgence, which means they are out of harm's way for now. But he is unable to bring them to Australia and cannot travel to Pakistan to see them, while refugees on temporary visas can get special travel documents solely for travelling to see immediate family, Pakistan is not currently granting visitor visas to such travellers. It is hard for me not knowing when I can see my family, he adds. He worries about his ageing mother, never missing their daily calls. His mother asks when he will come to see her again, but he cannot answer. I say, I don't know when I'm coming. Despite the enduring hardship, Husseini remains optimistic. I love it here, he says. It's a peaceful country. I don't face the discrimination that I used to face in Afghanistan. I can see dozens of different nationalities all living together peacefully. Approaching a decade since he arrived on Christmas Island, Husseini says his predicament, his permanent limbo, remains baffling. It's a hard thing to accept, he admits, but I don't have any other option. I just have to enjoy the life I have. He tries to stay positive and give back to his community, providing training and mentoring to emerging wrestlers. Life has been tough for me, but I must be a nice person, he adds. Otherwise, there is no difference between me and the government. Despite all this, he insists that he would pull on the green and gold in a heartbeat if given the opportunity to wrestle internationally. The Australian government punished me because of my arrival on a boat, but the Australian people have always been nice to me, he reflects. Of course I would represent the Australians. Husseini's sporting ambitions seem distant. Following the fall of Kabul, the Morrison government pledged that Afghan temporary visa holders would not be sent back, but there has been no indication the status quo will otherwise change. Yet Husseini still dreams of competing under his adopted flag at the Olympics. He says, The hope will always be with me. That was Ali Asghar Husseini, Australian wrestling champ who can't compete for Australia, by Kieran Pender. The reader was Colin Smith. To see a video of Ali wrestling, check out the link to the original article. We'll post it on the Guardian Australia Reads website. In many Pacific communities, climate change is forcing people to decide whether to leave their homes, where land is increasingly under threat from rising tides and natural disasters. But in Papua New Guinea, there is now new land, 
which has created new problems for its residents. While across the Pacific, communities are dealing with shrinking coastlines, one area in Papua New Guinea has an altogether different problem. A new island that has solidified and started supporting vegetation in the last few years has caused tensions and even outbreaks of violence as competing clans lay claim to the land. That fight has been intensified as communities struggle to deal with the consequences of warming oceans and the devastating impact of natural disasters. The island off the village of Gona in Oro province, and accessible by canoe, has gradually formed from three smaller islands over the course of two decades, but has only solidified over the past few years. Uninhabited, bar the occasional fishermen, it is now home to diverse local flora. Tropical pine, clinky pine, make up the majority of trees, while low-growing shrubs cover the rest of the island. At first, when forming, it was made entirely of just crushed coral and sand, but now there's soil, and we see vegetation that normally only grows in soil, says Simon Savoda, a local fisherman. We haven't planted anything. Everything sprang up naturally and on its own. The rain and waves wash a lot of seeds onto the island. But the island's emergence from the waves has caused tensions among two local clans, which have taken the matter to village and district courts in a bid to resolve the dispute. On several occasions, they have come to blows, including one instance in which a man was stabbed. Members of the Yegar tribe say their ancestors first settled the mainland opposite the island hundreds of years ago in a village called Waosisu, and eventually moved inland. But the Garara people, who now live along the coastline, have also laid claim to the island. If you look at old maps, the land didn't exist back then, says Deputy Provincial Administrator Joe Makata. And so, when warring tribes fought over land, this land wasn't there to be fought over. But in recent years, the island was formed. Vegetation started growing there, and people feel entitled to the land, but we have to determine who, if anyone, it belongs to. It's a strange phenomenon in which, while other parts of the Pacific, they are losing land to rising seawaters, we are instead gaining land. The formation of the island is yet to be studied. Locals say that the government and environmental experts have not visited the area to investigate. However, the community believes the island formed as wind and waves repeatedly deposited sediment, potentially pollution from a local palm oil factory, parallel to the shoreline, similar to the formation of a barrier island. Saboda says, Since the late 80s, when the oil palm factory commenced production, we have seen pollution in our ocean that came down from the Bangaho River mouth. We noticed the corals started dying and the fish population decreased. We especially noticed a drastic change after Cyclone Guba devastated the province of Oro in 2007. Coastal villages from Binjafada to Garara along the Ghana coast were destroyed. But while these villages were destroyed, this island started forming. Schneider Yassi, a private geologist for Kingston Resources who has reviewed maps of the area, thinks the island is likely to have been formed by sediment deposits. He says... It may have been a reef system that was eventually engulfed by the delta's continuous sedimentation. 
The dispute over the new island has also disrupted plans by local marine association Kikiri Local Marine Management Area, KLMMA, formed by youth from the area, to protect and sustainably manage marine resources in the area. The association began planting mangroves around the island to protect the surrounding wetlands and ecosystems, with future plans to turn the island into an ecotourism attraction. However, their plans were abruptly halted by local village elders. Elijah Yapuri, from Banuma Village, is a member of the association. He says, The older generation won't be around to feel the worsening effects of climate change, yet they are the ones putting a halt to our plans just to argue over whose land it is. Our generation will feel the full brunt of climate change and are already seeing it with our corals dying, villages going under, and so we are pushing to continue efforts to protect these resources for the future. But they don't see it that way. The effects of the climate crisis are evident at Oro Province and have intensified the dispute over this new land as villages are destroyed by cyclones or submerged by king tides, and food sources like fish become more scarce. Local fishermen say they have to go some miles out into the ocean to fish, because the water around the coast is too warm for fish and other sea creatures. Years ago, fish was abundant in this area, Seboda says. We used to simply throw our nets out and fetch tons of fish, and a variety of them too. But now the water is too hot for them, and the coral reefs near land have died, so they've migrated further out into the ocean, away from the land, so we have to travel further out there on our canoes to fish. I worry that one day we won't have any fish in the ocean. The villages that lined the once thriving coastline are now few and far between. A few tall, sturdy coconut trees are all that is left of the villages destroyed when Cyclone Guba hit in 2007. Oro was particularly badly affected, and 149 people were killed. Waususu, once a populous village, is now regularly inundated with water. Places where houses used to stand are now covered in mangroves and swamp. We are standing where the centre of the village used to be, Saboda says, as he stands knee-deep in a lagoon. Because of the cyclone and the sea levels rising... The people had to flee inland and settle where they could, because all land here is customary land. When it's high tide, the water comes all the way in, and we walk around with the water all the way to our ankles. That's why our houses are built high above on long wooden stilts, one villager, Mary, says. There is no beach when the tide is high. The water rises over the beach, which forces people passing by to come through our village to avoid the water. We are used to it now. We have no choice but be used to it. We have nowhere else to go. That was A Strange Phenomenon. New Island in Papua New Guinea prompts territorial dispute by Leanne Girari. The reader was Colin Smith. There are photos of the island and rising tides on Papua New Guinea in the original article, which we'll post in our show notes. You can find links to all of today's articles on the Guardian Australia Reads website. This episode was produced by Camilla Hannon, Daniel Simo, Alison Chan and me, Jane Lee. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Catch you then.